Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all today. Hey, um, if you were up today at about 6, 6.30, from 6.30 to 7.30, autumn happened again. And for a moment, autumn was around. It was about 70 degrees. Everything was cool. So I hope you enjoyed it this morning. Maybe give it another shot tomorrow. You'll discover that autumn's ha still happening and you can enjoy some of it. And uh, I absolutely love this time of the year. And that kind of leads us into Trunk or Treat. Trunk or Treat is our yearly thing where we kind of, we used to do it as an alternative to Halloween, but uh, now it's kind of turned out to a, an outreach into our community. We have over 500 children from the community that will show up. We're doing it on Saturday, October the 26th. And we're inviting you to be a part, and you can download our app. And on our app, you have the ability to sign up if you want to do a trunk. And, but what we're going to be doing this, this year that's a little different is that we're going to have Trunk or Treat on the 26th. We're just going to blow that thing up. It's going to be amazing for all the kids. But throughout the Trunk or Treat, we're going to communicate to the parents about coming back on Sunday with their kids. Because if you're a parent, you've spent about $75 for that little Cinderella outfit. And you need to get your money's worth out of it. So we're inviting everybody to invite their kids back on Sunday morning in their outfits. Now, we need to prepare ourselves. We may see some goblins or something from Harry Potter and everything. But, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. We're inviting these kids back to discover the truth about God and his love for them the following Sunday. So, so I invite you to be a part of it. Sign up through our app. You can sign up in the back afterwards. And also this Wednesday is our coming encounter service where we just have our monthly worship time and, and just allow the Spirit of God to do something in our lives. Well, welcome back to our uh, Living Life Uncommon in Common series. And we really have been learning about relationships. We really have learned that the statistics are in, and, and they've been in for a long time. I, it doesn't matter where you get them from. The statistics are in that we don't do relationships well. We don't do it really well in marriage. We don't do it whites with blacks, with old, with young, men with women. We don't, we don't do it really well in this country any longer. And so that we're trying to discover what God has invited us to, and that is to experience the uncommon of God so that we can live life in common with one another. Because unless we have something happen to us, we're just going to continue the same way that most people on this earth travel. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 2 kind of gave us this idea. He said, listen, if you want something uncommon to occur and you want to be able to live in common with that uncommon element, he said you're going to have to present yourselves unto God. He present the body of your relational work, how you do marriage, how you think women should treat men, how you think your boss should react, how you think whites should interact with blacks and blacks with whites, and, and how we do race in this culture. He says, listen, if you want something uncommon to happen, if you want it to be better than what we normally experience on this planet and in this country, he said, you're going to need an uncommon element. But you're first going to have to take your way, the way your pop did it, the way your genetics do it, and you're going to have to present it to God and say, God, listen, I want you to do something uncommon in what is the normal common outcome of my life. And so Romans 12, 2, he says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, the common way of doing things, but let God transform you into a new person. 
by changing the way that you think. See, it's, God doesn't say, hey, you just need to be better at marriage. You need to just be better as a parent. You need to be just better as a person. But rather, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there's going to have, God's going to have to get involved here. We're going to need God to do something. And, and I've told you over and over again, and, and I consider myself a transitional generation uh, in America, is that there's got to be a generation that says, listen, maybe we haven't been doing it all right. I have decided that I do not want to be the typical 60-year-old white chauvinist male in America because America needs something better than that. My wife needs something better than that. This church needs something better than that. It doesn't need another carbon copy of another 60-year-old guy behaving exactly how 60-year-old guys behave. I want something uncommon to happen in me. And as a result of it, God's going to say, listen, I need you to present yourself then. I need you to be willing to be transformed by me into thinking differently. And then he says this, then you will learn to know, not only intellectually, but you will experience God's will for you, which is good, and it's pleasing. And as an Italian would say it, it's just perfect. You know, it's like when you present yourself to me, when you allow God to change your thinking, you know, marriage will be all right. It, it won't be the prison that a lot of us have, have kind of fallen into belief. Church will be something pleasing, community, the way that we interact as a, as a culture to each other. He said it can become something that God intended it to be. So last week we learned about how we need to interact through communication in an uncommon way. But today we're going to kind of tag along with that, and we're going to talk about uncommoning conflicts. And this is really going to be part one of a, a two-part. And the reason why is this. It says, normally what I would do is I'd stand up here and give you five ways that you would, you know, you need to do this in conflict. And that's kind of like we do as pastors. We give you five ways to fix things. But you know what? There are some issues that are so deep that to give you five things today would just send you out there to fail just like I have over and over again. We don't need another five things, do we? We need transformation. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of draw back. We're going to pull back on this subject. We're going to kind of look at the, uh, the meta-narrative. How's conflict supposed to go? You know, how did God intended this to work out? What is the template of conflict? And, and let me see what that's about. So today, we're going to talk about it. And conflict happens, and it happens a lot, and our conflicts usually don't end well. And if any two people want to have a significant relationship, there's going to be conflict in it. And I know I hear it all the time when I'm doing marriage, pre-marriage counseling, not us, and we're, we love each other. We're not like our moms or our dads. Our love is different, and it's, it's going to be amazing. And I'll always hear a young couple just say, we've never argued. And I'm like, oh, you poor little puppies. You know, it's like, I can't believe you've never argued. You know, and, and so we're going to find out today that conflict is a part of any significant relationship. Jesus had conflict. I know we kind of want to, like, sanctify that whole thing there, but it's, you know, he had conflict with the devil, but let's just kind of give that as a given. Um, he had conflict with his disciples. I mean, they thought they were going to be like in charge of everything. Matter of fact, one of his boys said to him, listen, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. Not, uh, God forbid that would ever happen. And Jesus gets in his face and says, get behind me, Satan. 
If that ain't a conflict, I don't know what is. But there it is in the middle of Jesus' life. He, Jesus just decides he's going to go to a wedding. And while he's at the wedding, his mom comes up and says, listen, son, I need you to do something for me. And he's like, not now, mom. Have you ever been in that place? She's like, yeah, I need you to change. They ran out of wine, and I need you to do a miracle. And he says to her, woman, you, you know how that was writing, okay? You ever start off something, you tell a, tell a woman, at least today, woman. So he says, woman, what has this got to do with me? It's like, what, what are you bothering me for? What is this interaction? And, and Jesus gracefully interacts with his mom and everything works out all right. But anytime ha somebody has an expectation that you don't have, that is the potential of conflict. He had conflict with the religious people. Do we forget that this is the same Jesus that flips over the tables in the middle of the temple? That's conflict. That he has conflict with the political leaders. He has kind of a, a little debate with, with Pontius Pilate. He has such a conflict with Herod that he doesn't even talk to Herod. He's just like, speak to the hand. He's like, I, I'm not even talking to you because the conflict is so strong. I don't care how nice, and I know there are some of you here, I don't care how nice and perfect you are, you will, you will always have conflict on this earth as long as people like me are walking around. As long as the rest of us are here, you're going to have conflict. So why does most conflict happen? Well, here's a couple things. One, bad communications. Now, th this is kind of a two-parter. There's the methodological problem. That means, have you ever tried to have an argument or a conversation with a person via texting? They're terrible. That's not the time to text your husband and say, I hate your mother. Because, I mean, just the, the methodology of communication lends itself towards conflict. I mean, you don't get feeling. You don't see what's happening with the eyebrows or, or intonation of the voice. You don't have any of that going on in it. But then there's also bad communication because of the words. You know, you're, you're just not using the right words. So whenever my wife comes up to me and she says, does this dress make me look fat? You know, I, I'm just like backing up. I'm like, there are no good words at this moment. You know, it's like, what do I say? And I can say something like, honey, you always look beautiful. And she'd say, well, you obviously are avoiding the issue because you, so that means I look fat in this. And I'm like, there is just no good words to describe the communication. And as a result of it, sometimes we don't use the right words. We'll say things like, well, you took that the wrong way. Well, what I meant to say when I said that. Also, there's misunderstanding. It's just kind of a confusion that goes on as you're arguing or discussing or, or the conflict is occurring. There's unfulfilled expectations. That causes a lot of conflict. I thought you said that you were going to do this. Now, you can say this in marriage. You can say this in business. And two countries can even say, well, I thought your expectation was you were going to export this and we were going to import this. And as a result of a failed expectation, conflict happens. And it happens, it happens at home. It happens at work. It happens everywhere. Then there's this little element that is probably my biggest problem in conflict, is selfishness. Just plain selfishness. It's that I want what I want. I, I, it's mine. Don't take it. I deserve this. It's just like, well, what about me? 
How many times in the conflict of selfishness, if you were able to just step back for a second and you were to watch the conversation of you in, conversa- in conflict, how often would it be that selfishness seems to be driving it? And then another source of conflict is fear. What are the other people going to do? What are, what's going to happen to me? And, and you guys know at Crosstown, I don't mind kind of having conversations that we maybe don't normally have, but I try to be uncommon so that we can experience something uncommon in common. I, I remember one time, and it's kind of like a race story, and everybody on staff gets nervous when I use race as an illustration. Um, but I, we were driving with this really great family, God-loving people. I mean, just some of our best friends in the whole wide world. They were, they were driving, they were in the car with us, and, and this black gentleman walks across the street in the middle of kind of traffic, but, you know, I'm a Bostonian at heart. I know what it's like. You, know, you just, if there's an opening, you take it. And so, you know, I come to a stop, and, and, and this young black gentleman is walking past the car, and, and, the, and the young gal behind me, the, our friends, all of a sudden, Paul, lock the doors, lock the doors. He's got a gun. And I'm like, what? I, I, I'm like, do you see a gun? And she's like, no. And, and I started laughing. I said, honey, not all black men crossing the street have guns wanting to shoot white people in their cars. But you know what? Here was a perfectly good Christian young woman who loved God with all of her heart. And We love people of different races, but for some reason, she prepared herself for a conflict just out of fear. I don't know what I'm going to get from you or from this other person or this situation. There's the devaluing of differences. When we begin to devalue our gender differences, men versus women, women versus men, race and politics, when we begin to have different views and we don't value other people, even though they have different views, conflicts ensue. And then the last one is just the goo. That's the, theolog- that's the non-theological way of saying sin nature. We all have the goo. I mean, every single one of us have this goo that kind of manifests when we don't get what we want, when we're, in a, when we're being misunderstood, when we don't get our way, or we think that we're being taken advantage of it. So there's no wonder that there's conflict in the world around us. Do you know that 70% of Americans right now, which we, let's say we're a part of that, that crowd, 70% of us in this auditorium today don't like our jobs any longer? 70%. Do you know one of the number one reasons why people don't like their jobs? Even though they got their, they got their master's degree, they got their doctorate, they got all this education, they plan to do this job in their lives, that 70% of people decide they don't like their job any longer because of conflict in the workplace. And as a result of it, conflict begins to change our general satisfaction about things. It makes us not like our marriages so much. It makes us go from one church to another church because I'm going to go to this other church where they don't have conflict. Well, I'm here to tell you all those beautiful things, bad communication, misunderstanding, unfulfilled expectations, selfishness, fear, uh, differences, and sin nature, they're not only in this church, (laughs) they're right here inside of me. They're here in every single one of us today. But God wants to do something uncommon inside of us. So people living for God are no different. But God seems to enable us 
to experience something different, a different outcome than the common one. So Jesus had gone to heaven. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day. Um, He then kind of met with his disciples for a couple weeks, talked to them, kind of imparted the vision for them. And then a really key moment, he ascends up into heaven at the right hand of the Father, and then he pours out his Holy Spirit on the church. Something uncommon happens because he knows that this group of people cannot just be another, cannot be just another movement, that I'm going to have to do something uncommon in them to get a different result. So the rulers of the time decided that they wanted to wipe out the church. So what their strategy was, was to arrest the leaders of the church. If we could just kind of get rid of the leaders, we could do away with this movement. And so they were able at one time, initially, to get one of the apostles, the apostle James, and they were able to kill him. They kind of saw that that worked a little good on on their behalf, so they arranged it so that now we've got James and John and one of the other James that's involved, uh, 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 Peter and, and John and one of the other Jameses, and now we've got them arrested. And now they're like, listen, if we could just get away, kill these guys, we pretty much can wipe out this whole movement. And while they're trying to make their decision, this teacher stands up, Gamaliel, and he warns them not to kill the apostles. And I want you to hear why he tells them not to kill the apostles. He offers this very true advice in Acts 5, starting in verse 35. He says, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, uh, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up, and in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. You see the common way things happen? You see the common way trends happen, whether they happen then or they happen now? The common way that movements occur? So he goes on to say, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even find out that you're opposing God. So they took his advice. Historically, these kind of movements had and continued to have a way of falling apart. He knew that if it was just another idea of man, just another uprising, just another marriage, just another family, just another country, just another city, doing life the way that men commonly do life, that it would fail. It's true. The movement will only continue if what is meant is more than just something movement. Something moving. You know, it's, it's got to be, he's like, listen, if they really mean this, if something real is going on here, what is meant by this thing called the church is really substantial and it's real, then it will be more than even all the moving around that's going on. So he says, don't, don't try to stomp out all the moving, 
moving, he said, let's find out what is meant in this thing called the church. See, Gamaliel knew that something oppositional would test the quality of the church eventually. And he wouldn't have to wait too long. He knew that the unity and their belief would be challenged, just like our marriages. Usually at about three years, we kind of find out. As a result of some oppositional force that comes into everyone's life, we begin to find out whether or not it's going to stick together. We begin to find out what it's made out of. And you know what's interesting? Gamaliel was right. He just told him, hold on, guys. Leave these guys alone. We're going to find out in a few minutes anyway. If, as soon as they experience opposition, we're going to find out what this thing is really made of. And it will probably go the way that it usually does. They'll kind of break up, and then we won't hear of them again. They'll be just a, a Theodos. There'll be another Judas. There'll be another movement that has occurred, and it will just disperse. And the interesting thing is that he was right. An event did occur. And you know, it's interesting, it wasn't persecution that was the event that he was talking about. And it wasn't another crucifixion, because crucifixions continued throughout the area to the disciples and the followers of Christ. The, the, the event that he's talking about happens in the very next chapter after he says it. Listen to it in Acts chapter 6. It's, 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 it's not crucifixion, it's not persecution. It's, it's not this giant thing that you think it's going to be. At that time, as the number of the disciples grew, Greek-speaking Jews complained about Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking Jews claimed that the widows among them were neglected every day when food and other assistance was distributed. We got it, folks. It doesn't have to be aliens. It doesn't have to be Rome. It doesn't have to be the, the Jewish leaders. This is the moment that Gamaliel knew that would come. Conflict. Deep, racial, substance-based conflict. I mean, this is gorgeous. I mean, this conflict doesn't get any better than that. We got, we got one race of, of followers versus another race of followers, and then we also have substance involved, that those who have and those who don't have, those who are entitled, those who are not entitled. We have the makings of the end of the church of Christ right here. You say, well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Oh, come on, look around you. Isn't this exactly what's happening in America? Isn't this the division that's actually happening? It's, it's not the Russians. It's, it's not the North Koreans that are going to bring us down. It's going to be something like this. It's what we see happening in communities. We see what's happening between a husband and wife arguing over the substantial substance of the relationship. Who gets what? And the early church is at the point of a pin, right at this point. Would they be led by the same principles that many short-lived movements had before them? Or would there be something uncommon about them? The common outcome is deeply unresolved conflict. Racial disharmony lasting for centuries. And we have that here, don't we? So I, I don't know what kind of man Gamaliel was, but he, you know, he probably was like, <laughs> I told you guys, don't worry, I told you it wouldn't fail. 
All they needed is to have these little Christian guys just getting in an argument about race or get them in an argument about entitlement or about stuff or the, those who have and those who don't have. And he said it would fail. But you know what? It didn't happen. Something uncommon was, was working within these people. Gamaliel knew that there would come a point, like in all movements, like in all marriages, like in all churches, like in all communities, when the oppositional challenges would begin to change the movers, for the better or for the worse, that conflict would become that, that stone in the shoe that would begin to alter the path of those who are part of the movement. It is at this point that most people bail on something that is just a good idea. I mean, there's been a gazillion of great ideas, but it's when conflict that comes around that all good ideas are usually left behind. It's not enough just to come up with a socially revolutionizing idea. That's not when it stands or falls, whether or not that's a great idea. <laughs> no. That's not when it stands and falls. It happens when that idea requires its followers first to be revolutionized. And that's what we're talking about today. See, I could give you five things for you to go home, but if you have not been revolutionized first, then the revolution stops right here. If we haven't been substantially changed by the Holy Spirit and invited God, laid our ways of doing relationships down before God and allowed the Holy Spirit to move in us, to transform us, then the idea ends here. Five good ideas just become ideas and the next conflict separates us from them. It happened again. Gamaliel was right. Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, how can this go wrong? It's kind of like me, me and my wife on a Saturday morning. Hey, what do you think? You want to go downtown, go to Palmetto Cafe and, and have breakfast together? That's great. It's like, what can go wrong with that idea? And then 15 minutes later, we're arguing. It's like, come on, this is a beautiful idea. I mean, what can possibly go wrong with going around and visiting everybody and seeing how the word of God has been going on in their lives? There's no way Paul and Barnabas can probably mess this up. Now, listen to this, after the idea was floated out there. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought it would be best to, take, to not take them, take one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. It's like, okay, now we have these two apostles in an argument, in conflict with each other. And there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. These are apostles, men of God who have gotten in an argument over whether or not John Mark should go on the trip. Gamaliel knew this kind of moment would happen to them and would happen to us. And this is a perfect one. This is almost as good as the first one. We got a conflict. It's deep. But this one's got a little juice added to it. It's family-based. 
What we don't know at this point is that Barnabas is actually the cousin of John Mark. He can't leave his cousin and tell him he can't come. I want my cousin to come. This is, you're talking about my family, man. And so they begin to get into this argument over it. And then the common outcome of a situation like this is what? You know what it is because you haven't been talking to your dad for 10 years. You know what it's like because you wouldn't have a phone call with your sister ever since that event occurred. You know what it's like to have deep family conflict that never gets spoken of again. The common outcome is unforgiveness and lifelong bitterness. That's so common. But it didn't happen here. That's not how it turned out for Paul and for Barnabas. Change the word movement to relationship. The idea of your marriage and your family and your friendships and your community, they're all, they're all good ideas. But they will be challenged by conflict. And if they are not uncommon, made of God stuff, Gamaliel has already told you what's going to happen. They will disperse and it will fail. Bad communication, misunderstandings, unfulfilled expectations, selfishness, fear, differences, and sin will always, always be with us. I love my little grandbaby. You've seen her around. She's, she's the little girl that has a bow that's like the size of her head. And you know, it's like this giant bow up there. And, and, um, and she's got this pretty little outfit that Susan bought. And, you know, everything's just perfect. The little carrier is the best one for going in car crashes. It's top of the line, nothing, be- nothing less than top of the line. And carrying her around, and people are looking at her. And you know what? I just was seeing her this morning. I'm like, you know what's inside that little girl? Oh, that little sweet little thing. There's a bundle of bad communications, misunderstanding, unfulfilled expectations, selfishness, fear, differences, and sin. You know, if you're on a hunt for a good church, a church where they don't gossip, a church where they don't fight, a church where they don't have conflicts, good, it's just not happening. Um, because in every pulpit, in every church in this city is a man like me, and we all have it. In every church, in every, every congregation, in a city today like Charleston, there's people like you, and we all have it. But God has called us to something uncommon. He's called us to experience something different. Break it down any way that you want. Greek versus Jews, blacks versus whites, girls versus guys, Protestants versus Catholics, management versus workers, husbands versus wives, kids versus parents, me versus you. It always breaks down that way. But if we will allow the Spirit of God to do something different in us, we can overcome it all. We will be able to forgive it. We will be able to admit it. We will be able to resolve it. We'll be able to renew relationships. And with some added wisdom from God, in some cases, we will even be able to avoid some of it. So after allowing the Spirit of God to change his very conflicted heart, don't crown Paul perfect just yet. The man was so conflicted 
before God got a hold of him. But after God began to do something uncommon in his life, the Apostle Paul taught the principle to success, to surviving the challenge of conflict, and it was this. Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That's what God's calling us to. Be devoted to one another. The word devoted up there is, is, is not just to puff up the idea of love. It's kind of like the word courage. You know, we talk about having courage as opposed to not having fear, but that's not really what it is. Courage implies that fear is resident. You don't need courage if you, if you, if you, have, um, if you don't have fear. You only need courage when it's implied that fear is at your door. You don't need devotion when you don't have conflict. When I'm kayaking down the river with Susan, and if we're going down the, the river at the same time and the, and the currents flow in the same direction, I don't need to be devoted to paddling because we're just kind of enjoying the same ride, going in the same direction, doing the same thing. It's only when we begin to paddle back against the current that we have to be devoted to paddling. So when Paul says, be devoted to one another, he's implying, listen, I want you to realize you're going to have conflict, but don't be superficial about it. I want you to be devoted to one another, even when you're not in agreement with each other. And I love what he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, I don't know why he used the phrase brotherly love. I don't know if it was kind of like from his Jewish background to use a masculine reference to love as opposed to a sulfuric type of uh, 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 a sisterly love. But either way, the Holy Spirit inspired him to use this phrase brotherly love. And why do I think brotherly love was shoved in there? Well, nobody knows probably better than I do. I'm one of eight boys in a family. I know what brotherly love looks like. It's noogies. It's getting, getting hit over and over again with a pillow that you think that that pillow is in your ear. It's wedgies. It's being held down while your littlest brother gives you wet willies. Am I scarred? Yes, I'm scarred. I mean, but I'll tell you what, there's something about the fight of a brotherly love. And I'm not saying sisters don't do that. I've raised all girls. I, I can see what that can turn into also. But there's something about the band of brotherly love that God calls us all, all to. There's something very masculine in that that he wants all of us, men and women, to grab a hold of. Is that, listen, I want you to be devoted to each other. I want you to fight for each other. I want you to fight for your marriages. I want you to fight for your church. I want you to fight for your community. I want you to scrap over it. I don't want you to be so easily offended that you go to another church or you say, well, maybe I married the wrong person all the time. He's like, listen, I wanted, God wants to do something in our lives that is different. I love that he says, he says, not only in brotherly love, but in preference to one another. It's not about me first, or my turn, or that's mine, but rather considering the preference of another person. He's like, this is the standard. This is what I'm calling you to. And it is this principle that changes and defines a movement. It is this principle that defines a marriage, it defines a family, it defines a nation, it defines a city, it defines 
It defines every kind of relationship that we can be in when we are experiencing conflict. So Gamal, Gamaliel truthfully said, if this plan or this undertaking, put in parentheses, plug it in for yourself, this marriage, this family, is of man and is being run in the common way that men and women run marriages, it will fail. But if it is of God, if the status quo has been challenged, if the Spirit of God has been invited into your life and His truth directs your steps, He said, you will not be able to overthrow it. And it will be so of God that if you fight against this marriage, take notice, you'll be fighting against God. And we're being told that we can have these kinds of relationships in the midst of conflict. So as we move into this moment of expressions, and if you're here, that's just a, a moment when we, we kind of break it all down and, and we just invite the Holy Spirit here and this is your time with him. It's kind of like all the ideas, all the theory, all the rhetoric, every, all the things that have been spoken right now, it's now your time to take and do something with it. Whether that is have a moment with, with God in communion, that's one of the ways that you can do it. Whether it's through giving, whether it's through a, maybe sitting in your seat and having a moment of worship and connecting with God. Whether it's maybe writing out a prayer or a, a thanksgiving and pinning it to the cross. Unless we are first revolutionized by the narrative of be devoted to one another, Unless we allow ourselves to be revolutionized by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and God's Word, the movement, whether it's Crosstown Church, whether it's the Rienzo family, whether it's the community of West Ashley or Charleston itself, it all ends right here. Unless we are first revolutionized by it. So you don't need five things to go out and do today, do you? That's no. What do you need? You need the Holy Spirit. A relationship is always defined when a changing of thinking is required, when a sacrifice needs to be made, when a conflict needs to be faced, and when the status quo needs to be challenged. You don't need a new husband, I don't think. You don't need a new job, I don't think. Your president, having a new president, I don't think that's going to do it either. What we need is a change of status quo right inside each and every one of us. We need to be revolutionized by the spirit of the living God. The movement of God in your life will come to a point when you have to decide to be changed by the spirit of God in his word. It is the only thing that will move you beyond you. This community needs me to be moved beyond me. Your family needs you to be moved beyond you. And today, as we present ourselves, our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice unto God, we will be transformed in the renewing of our minds. So let me invite you. Let this revolution of love first happened to you.
For Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will come again. Let that revolution become a reality in your life today. Father, as we enter into this moment, this sacred place of dialogue between you and my heart, I pray, Lord God, that you would transform my thinking about myself, about you, about my neighbor, that you will transform my thoughts about my wife, about my conflicts, about my rights. The Lord God, that you would transform me so that I will not be a puppet to my selfishness and my bad communication and my fears, but that the same power that rose Christ from the dead can quicken, can energize my mortal body, my, my human thinking, my my life and my history can be transformed by the power of the resurrection. And so, Father, today, we surrender ourselves, our way of life to you. Transform us by thy Holy Spirit. We thank you.